Happy Sunday. Good morning. It is good to be together on the Lord's Day, isn't it? I'm very, very thankful to be here with you all. Thanks for joining us. Um, I'm going to jump right in. We're going to be in 1 Peter this morning. Uh, surprise, surprise. We're going to be in 1 Peter chapter 3. So if you go ahead and get ready to turn there, let me just kind of tell you a little bit about my dilemma this week. Um, I have certain goals when I prepare a sermon for you guys on Sundays. Uh, goal number one is that whatever I say will be glorifying to God, lift up his name. Goal number two is that uh, everything I say will be true and that truth would come forth and change our lives. And goal number three is that it would be practical, that it would be applicable, that you would be able to say on Sunday, hey, I know how my life needs to be different on Monday because of what I learned from the Word of God on Sunday, right? So those are kind of the goals that I go into uh, sermon preparation with. And uh, this week, as we're working verse by verse through 1 Peter, uh, I, I had a, a bit of a struggle, to be honest with you, because, because the verses that we're dealing with this week are confusing and uh, even somewhat controversial, a little bit hard to understand. Uh, and so uh, I'm faced with the challenge of going, wow, do I try to find some way to go, hey, how do we make this incredibly practical so everybody knows how to take it home and use it? Or do I say, listen, uh, this needs to be explained. This needs to be torn apart. This needs to be dug deep into so that we can understand not only what God is saying to us in 1 Peter, but what he's saying elsewhere in Scripture because this passage has an effect on how we look at other passages. So I have to tell you that today is going to be a little more teachy and a little less preachy. It's going to be a little more sort of put on your thinking caps, take out your number two pencils, take notes. It's going to remind you of school a little bit, but that's okay. We're going to get through it together, and it's going to actually be life-changing in the end. So that's been kind of what we're dealing with going into this week. And by God's providence, he brought us to the end of 1 Peter 3 on Palm Sunday because, because this passage will give us some theological context for Good Friday and for Easter Sunday. So let's go back to Palm Sunday and start there. You can only imagine the excitement that was in the air, the energy that was in the crowd. The people had been gathering all morning. The city had swollen to twice its normal size because it was the Passover week. And everyone who was anywhere near Jerusalem wanted to be in the holy city for the Passover celebration. This is the time where the, the lambs are being slain, that the, that the uh, preparations are being made. And they're there are tens of thousands of extra people in the city and, the, and the, the streets are just swollen with crowds. But on top of that, there's something sort of happening kind of impromptu that, that sort of reminds me of New Year's morning and the Rose Parade route, right? There, there are people who got there really early. They, they brought their lunch they are ready to spend the day. There's a celebration that is going on and there's a buzz in the crowd because word is getting around. 
that Jesus is going to be coming into town for the Passover. And the people are excited and they're looking forward to it because we're now three years into Jesus' public ministry. And by now, there are thousands and thousands of people who are convinced this might actually be the Messiah that we've been waiting for. And so they're lining the streets and they can't wait for him to come. And as you know, there's something that we now call the triumphal entry that takes place. As the people line the streets, Jesus comes riding in on a, the colt of a donkey. And as he comes riding into town, the people just erupt in cheers. People are singing, they're shouting, and the word that is coming most out of their mouths is what word? Hosanna. And Hosanna means save us or Savior. So they're, they're saying, you're the Savior. You're the one we've been waiting for. Save us, Lord. Save us. And so as the triumphal entry is taking place, everybody is watching. The Jews are watching. The Jewish leaders are watching. To them, to the Jewish believers, to them, this is the Messiah triumphantly riding into town to stake his claim as the deliverer of Israel. They all have their own ideas of what that's going to look like, but they know this, Rome is out, Israel is back to, to prominence again, and they can't wait to see this happen. They've been praying for this their whole lives, and they're waiting, and they're excited because the whispers are happening and going from ear to ear. Maybe this is him. I think this is him. I'm sure this is him. I heard about some miracles. I actually saw some miracles. You know, my friend was healed, and the talking is going, and the buzzing is happening, and everybody's getting super, super excited because the Jews see the Messiah as their deliverer. He's the one they've been waiting for. But the Jews are not the only ones watching. The Romans are watching too. And they're watching carefully. Because to them, as we see this sort of entourage come into town and Jesus riding on a donkey, the picture to them is that of a triumphant king or a general who's coming back from battle and he's coming into town and the people are lining the streets and they're shouting praises to him and he's there to announce his victory. And Rome is a little nervous about this. To them, frankly, it seems kind of pathetic. To them, frankly, it seems sort of silly. I mean, a great general rides in on a white horse with his army surrounding him. Jesus rides in on a donkey with a bunch of fishermen. And they're thinking, what is everybody so excited about? But one thing they know for sure, and that is, this guy's starting to make us nervous. This guy might be somebody we have to deal with. So the Jews are watching, the Romans are watching, but there's somebody else watching as well. Satan and his minions are paying very close attention to this event. You see, first of all, let's just start by saying this. As we talk about the Lord today, we're also going to talk about the enemy, and his name is Satan. And, and depending on sort of how you view all of this, 
A lot of people have the idea, there's, there seems to be two extremes that people have. On the one hand, there are people who are like, oh yeah, I see a demon under every rock. Uh, the demons are controlling everything. Satan is in charge. Every time I get a pimple or a wart or stub my toe, that's Satan's attack and I know that. And everything is blamed on Satan and he becomes our excuse for all of our problems, right? But then on the other side of the spectrum are people who go, you know, Satan is kind of a, more of a metaphor. He's not like a real being. It's like a symbol of evil. And both of those um, views are extreme. Both of those views are off pace because the truth of the matter is Satan is a very real being and he is very powerful and he is very committed and he is very focused and he is at war with God. Satan knew who Jesus was as he came riding into Jerusalem that day. And he knew the prophecy from Genesis, promising that one day the Messiah, the offspring of the woman, would crush the head of the serpent. Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. And from that day forward, when that curse was pronounced on Satan... He had been trying to win this battle with God by preventing the Messiah from accomplishing the victory. This was war. And Satan had tried every tactic he could come up with to try to stop the saving work of the Messiah. He'd been at it for centuries. 500 years before this event, Satan tried to wipe out all of the remaining Jews on earth. That has happened to the Jewish people multiple times. Satan tried to wipe out all of the Jews on earth and he got this close. If God had not worked through a woman named Esther to change the heart of the king, the line of the Messiah would have been wiped out. Uh, in in uh, 2 Chronicles chapter 22 and 23, Satan tried to specifically wipe out the messianic line. If we could just do away with this line that traces back to David, then we destroy any hope of a Messiah coming. Satan tried to kill the Messiah by murdering all the young boys that were born in and around Israel to the, during the time of Christ's birth. But God intervened and protected him. And when all of that failed, he attacked directly. When, when Jesus was most vulnerable, Satan attacked him directly during his 40 days of fasting. And when he had been fasting for 40 days, Satan confronted him directly and tempted him with every temptation he could come up with. And, and basically what he tried to do is get the Messiah to switch sides and worship him. And he tempted him in every way he knew how to do that. And if he could do that, then that would change the whole game. But that didn't work either. But finally, finally, after all of these centuries of efforts, Satan was able to incite the Jewish leaders and the Roman authorities to work together an unheard of idea to crucify Jesus, thus putting an end to the threat once and for all. Or so he thought. (laughs) 
He saw to it that Jesus was beaten and whipped and tortured and humiliated before he was finally hung naked on a cross to bleed to death. He made sure that Jesus was dead by inspiring the Roman soldier to take his spear, shove it up through the ribs, through the lung, into the heart, and blood and water flowed out, confirming his death. When they took that lifeless body of Jesus off that bloody cross, they laid it in a tomb. A stone was rolled across the opening of the tomb. It was sealed, and a Roman guard was placed around it. Finally, Satan had victory. Finally, the demons had won. Finally, the party began for Satan and his minions because finally they had accomplished what they set out to accomplish. Or so they thought. And that's where we pick up our story in 1 Peter chapter 3. So if you got your Bibles, turn to 1 Peter chapter 3 near the back of your Bibles. If you go to the book of Revelation, which is the last book, and go left several pages, you're going to find 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, 1st and 2nd Peter. We're in 1st Peter chapter 3. Now remember, Peter has been talking about suffering. He's been talking about standing firm in the midst of the storms of life, and he's been telling us to hang in there. To follow the example of Jesus who endured such terrible suffering only to finally taste victory. And we pick it up now in 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 18. For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. That verse alone is just worth cheering about. It says, for Christ also died for sin once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God. What a mighty God we serve. What an incredible blessing to have a God who would love us so much that he would send his only son to pay the price that only he could pay to restore us to a relationship with God. It's an amazing thing. And it goes on to say, that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Peter's talking about the crucifixion here. Jesus was absolutely dead when he was taken off the cross. This is one of the most indisputable facts of a history. It's written about by secular historians. It's written about by eyewitnesses. It's written about by religious leaders. It is carried on throughout history. It's an indisputable fact that Jesus of Nazareth was crucified on that Friday, that his dead body was taken off the cross, and he was laid in a tomb that was then sealed and surrounded by Roman soldiers. He had taken on flesh at Christmas and on Good Friday, that flesh was put to death. As a great church father, Athanasius, points out, Jesus took on flesh so that he could borrow death in order to pay the price for human sin. See, the wages of sin is death, the scripture says. So the only way to pay the price for human sin is human death. So Jesus became human so that in the flesh he could die as payment for our sins. 
So Jesus died in the flesh. There was no other way. But he never died spiritually. Just as his followers will never die spiritually. So as 1 Peter 3.18 points out, even when Jesus was dead in the flesh, he was spiritually alive. Look at the end of the verse again. It says, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Or in Greek, the word the is not there. It says, been made alive in spirit. So spiritually, he's alive, but physically, he's dead. That's the point. On the third day, he became physically alive again. But what was going on between Friday and Sunday? Now, that's a good question. And Peter's going to address that specific question here in this passage. Verse 19 begins to answer the question for us. So he was, he was put to death in the flesh, verse 18, made alive in the spirit, in which also he went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison. What? What does that mean? That, that he, was, he was put to death in the flesh, but he was alive spiritually, and therefore, spiritually, it says, he went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison. It's a strange concept. What in the world is it talking about? Did Jesus go to hell while he was in the tomb? A lot of people think so. But actually, it doesn't make any theological sense when you compare that with the rest of Scripture. Um. First of all, I don't know if you know this or not, but, but according to Scripture, people are not in hell yet. That doesn't happen until after the great white throne judgment, which has not taken place yet. And even if people were there, there is no exit from hell. Don't picture Jesus somehow going into hell to those who are being punished for their sin who without faith are now lost in, in their sin and being judged and he somehow preaches the gospel to them and they go, oh, now we get it and they come out of hell. That's not what happened. Nobody gets out of hell. And the reason nobody will get out of hell is because the price is too high. It wouldn't matter how many years you spent in hell or how much you suffered in hell, there is no price that you or I could possibly pay that is high enough to justify rebellion and treason against the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. The only one who could possibly pay that price has to be sinless, it has to be God himself. And so no sinner could ever pay his own debt and get out of hell. This, uh, this doctrine that some of us have learned over the years about um, you know, purgatory and somehow if you stay there long enough, you could pay for all of your sins. There's nothing in scripture to tell us anything like that would happen. Jesus paid for our sins. If we're counting on ourselves to somehow earn our way into God's favor, as the scripture says, we are of all men most to be pitied. Only Jesus can pay for our sins. So, number one, he didn't go into hell. And number two, it does not say that he went and made proclamation to people. It says that he went and made proclamation to spirits now in prison. 
And the Greek word here that is used for spirits is not the word that is described, that is used to describe the spiritual nature of man. It's a word that is specifically um, set aside for angelic beings. So when we're talking about these spirits, we're talking about angelic beings that are now in prison. It's more complicated than we thought, isn't it? It's confusing, isn't it? What angelic beings are there who are in prison? That's another excellent question. I'm proud of you guys. <laughs> Look at verse 20. These angelic beings who once were disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. These spirits that he's describing as being in prison, these spirits are some of the angels who were cast out of heaven along with Lucifer. Today we know these fallen angels as what? Demons. And these particular demons have been imprisoned, it says, in a place the Bible calls the bottomless pit. And there they await their coming judgment. They've been bound there since their activities in the days of Noah. And now we're talking about the days of Jesus and move forward 2,000 years and we're talking about the days of us. They've been in this pit since the time of Noah. And you guys, I wish we had time to look up all these verses, but for now I'm gonna say, trust me and look it up at home, okay? Because we don't have time for all of the details of those demons going into the pit, what they did and why that happened, but the scripture describes it all for us. But during the extremely evil days of Noah, this is the summary, during the extremely evil days of Noah, there were apparently certain demons who were possessing people. And demon possession, of course, we know is very common in the New Testament, is very common in the Old Testament. And these demons are possessing the bodies of men and they're cohabitating with human women. And the result is these creatures that the Bible calls Nephilim. And this is all in the days of Noah. And the flood of Noah wiped them out along with all of mankind except for the eight people who were on the boat. And these demonic spirits who have rebelled against God in such a way are now locked up in what the Bible calls the abyss or the bottomless pit until the time of their eventual judgment. And that's a study for another day. It's a fascinating study. But for our purposes today... What we need to know is that these imprisoned spirits that Jesus went to during the time that his uh, body was dead in the grave, these are spirits to whom he made proclamation, it says. He made proclamation to these spirits at that time. What does that mean? Well, the Greek word for making proclamation is the word that is used to describe a herald. A herald is one who goes before the king, enters the town, blows the trumpet, makes the announcement of the king's victory, and alerts the city that there's going to be a parade. That's what the herald does. He announces the victory. And so this Greek word that is translated in my Bible is proclamation. Some of your Bibles might say preached. The, the word itself means to herald or make an announcement of victory. 
So Jesus goes to announce his victory to those who had rebelled against him so long ago. He proclaims the victory of the king, and that's what he does. Are you starting to see the connection to Palm Sunday? Jesus did not go to hell to preach the gospel to sinful men. He went to the bottomless pit to proclaim his victory over Satan. If I can say with respect, he went to talk smack. (laughs) And just as during the judgment of Noah, God provided an ark to save those eight people who by faith believed, in the same way, he provided a savior called Jesus who provided salvation to all of those of us who will believe today. Just as the only way to be saved from the flood was to put your trust in God and enter the boat, it's by faith alone that any of us can enter that saving relationship with Christ. And that salvation is what carries us through, carries us past the judgment of God. So those are hard verses. And now that we have endeavored to clear up the confusion of verses 18 through 20, we find ourselves with another very confusing idea in verse 21. Look at verse 21. Corresponding to that, corresponding to what, or in the same way, the same way as the ark, the same way as the fact that people were saved by faith by getting on the ark and were protected from judgment, in the same way, corresponding to that, baptism now saves you. What? It's what it says. Baptism now saves you. Not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Okay, so here's the problem. We know from the clear teaching of Scripture all through the Bible that nobody ever got saved through water baptism. That, that water baptism is a, is, a, is a work that I do myself to proclaim my faith, and nobody is saved by their own good works. Being immersed in water, which is what the word baptized means there, is a symbolic act of identification with Christ. I want you to turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2. And we're going to look together. It's just a few books to your left. We're going to look together after Galatians, before Philippians, go to Ephesians chapter 2. And these are familiar verses to some of us, but they're so clear to make sure we don't misunderstand and think that somehow what Peter is saying is that if we could just get baptized, we'll get to heaven. Here's what it says. For by grace, underline that word, you have been saved through faith. Underline that word. And that, the faith, not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. You know what that means? It means that you don't muster up enough faith to come into a saving relationship with God. It means that God, by his amazing grace, when he gives you the message of the gospel, also gives you the faith to believe. And it's the exercise of that God-given gift of faith that brings us into a relationship with Christ. It is not something we did. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. 
Now, I don't care what works you're going to do. I don't care if you're going to give all your money to the poor. I don't care if you're going to live in a monastery and, and spend your life on your knees in prayer. I don't care if you're going to get baptized in every pool you can find. The scripture says there is nothing you or I can do to save ourselves. Those are our works. We cannot be saved by our works. We're saved by the incredible atoning work of Jesus Christ alone. In fact, let's look at one more passage. Uh, flip a little bit to the left and go to the book of Romans. And we're going to look at Romans chapter 6 just briefly. Now I know you're thinking, yeah, every time he goes to Romans, it's never brief. But trust me, <laughs> I'm going to just do this briefly. We're going to go Romans chapter 6 beginning in verse 3. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized, there's that word again, into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore, we've been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is freed from sin. Now, if we've died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. Knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. There's that phrase again. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. What's he saying? He's saying that this baptism that we receive as believers, there's, there's multiple kinds of baptism. The word baptism is from the Greek word baptizo, which literally means to immerse. It simply means to immerse. And so sometimes when we're talking about baptism in scripture, we're talking about water baptism in which a believer as a symbol of their faith is immersed in water to identify with the death of Christ, raised from the water to identify with the new life that is in Christ, and it's a symbolic gesture. There's also uh, speaking in scripture of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. When the Holy Spirit comes to take up residence in our lives and we are now in the spirit. The scripture also talks about being baptized into Christ, which is what we're talking about here in Romans 6. He says you're baptized into Christ by faith. It's not a matter of works. It's not a matter of being baptized into water. He's talking about a different kind of baptism. Water baptism is a symbolic act of identification with Christ. It's a simple act and if that simple act of water baptism could save us, there would be no need for the bloody cross of Good Friday. There, there would be no need for the empty tomb of Easter. That's why Peter explains it the way he does. Let's get back to 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 21. Look at the second half of the verse. He talks about baptism, and then he says, not the removal of dirt from the flesh but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. 
So specifically, he says, I'm not talking about water baptism, which might wash dirt off of your flesh. I'm talking about spiritual baptism in which you become one with Christ. And how does that happen? Ephesians 2 says it happens by grace through faith. As we put our faith in Christ, we are baptized into Christ. And that's why the scripture tells us over and over when describing believers that we are in Christ and that Christ is in us. We're baptized into him by faith. This is not water baptism. This is spiritual baptism that removes guilt from the soul, not water baptism that removes dirt from the flesh. Remember, Romans 6 talks about being baptized into Christ. It's that baptism into Christ by faith which saves us, not water baptism. It's only by faith in Christ that our record of sin can be removed. It's only by faith in Christ that our conscience can be cleared of guilt. And by the way, Satan still loves to attack followers of Christ on this level trying to convince us that we're guilty and that our guilt separates us from God. But that is what Jesus died to fix on the cross, amen? So so my guilt, I'm not saying I don't sin. I'm not saying I don't have a huge rap sheet in heaven of all of the things that I have done wrong. And I'm also not saying I'm probably not gonna sin tomorrow, But the scripture says that the death of Christ paid the price for the sin of everyone who will put their faith in him, past, present, and future. I am no longer a slave to sin because of my trust in Christ, because of what he did, and therefore my conscience can be clear. The scripture doesn't just say that he, that he died to pay for our sin, but that he died to pay for the guilt of our sin, to remove the guilt of our sin. That's what Jesus did on that cross. For those of us who have submitted our lives to the lordship of Christ, the guilt of our sins has already been covered by the precious blood of Jesus. And though we still stumble, though we still sin in our fleshly state, even though that sin does interrupt our fellowship with God, it does not kick us out of the family. We have access to God through our great high priest whose name is Jesus so that we can confess, we can repent, we can be restored, we can be absolved of the guilt of our sin. Our salvation comes by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And how do we know that our victory and our standing in Christ is secure? Because of the empty tomb. I, I, I didn't mean to give away next week's sermon, but <laughs> if you show up on Easter, you get the details of that. They really did killed Jesus on that cross. They really did bury his body in a tomb and surround it with soldiers. But as we enter this Holy Week, let's remember something. There's good news. He is not in the tomb anymore. And he sits on the throne of heaven forevermore from which he intercedes for us.
He is alive. And because of that, we are alive as well if we put our trust in him. And he sits on that throne forevermore. Look at verse 22. Speaking of Jesus, who is at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers had been subjected to him. The bad news is that there's nothing we can do to wash away our sins. The good news is we don't have to. Because of what Jesus Christ has done for us on that cross. Because the cross is bloody. Because the tomb is empty. You and I can know true life. Jesus already paid the price for our sin. He proclaimed his victory over Satan in the bottomless pit. And he rose again to give us new life. More about that next week. What a mighty God we serve. Mm. Let's stand and pray together. Lord, we, we stand humbly before you, King of kings and Lord of lords the one who is truly holy, the one who is truly blameless. And we stand before you as those who have no right to be in your presence except that Jesus gave us that right, except that you have adopted us as your children and called us your own, except that we have been baptized into Christ by faith. Lord, we give you all thanks, all praise, and all glory what a mighty God you are. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Amen.